Friends, our lectionary text for this Pledge Sunday comes from our New Testament epistle reading. It is from uh, 2 Timothy. This is a unique book in uh, the Bible. It is a book that was written not to a community, uh, like most of the letters were in the New Testament, but written to a person. Paul is writing to an individual, Timothy, who was a young leader in the church that Paul had mentored. And in both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, uh, Paul is encouraging Timothy in his leadership. He's, call, he's encouraging him in his calling. And as we read this today, we read this one section of 2 Timothy, I hope that we are encouraged in our calling as individuals. And as we come to this Pledge Sunday, that it's a reminder and encouragement to us about the call before us as a community of faith. We're going to read this scripture a little differently than we do sometimes uh, in the past. Normally what we do is uh, read the entire scripture passage and then move into a time for the sermon where we'll uh, look at it and talk about it. Today we're going to read the scripture in two different parts. Uh, this comes from the, the, the last verses of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. So we're going to read that first. Then we're going to talk about it for a minute. And we're going to have a story that's going to lead us into reading chapter 4, the second part, uh, later on in the message. Okay, So in your bulletin, you'll see that it's divided into two paragraphs. That's for uh, chapter 3, which we'll look at. We'll take a pause and talk for a second, and then we'll come back and read chapter 4. So let's read together now the first few verses of our passage for today from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says this, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we gather and worship this day, we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would transform us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So friends, in this first half of what we're reading, in these verses to the end of chapter 3, Paul is clearly encouraging Timothy and clearly encouraging us to pay attention to what he calls the sacred writings to Scripture, to the importance of Scripture in each of our lives, in each of our journeys. In fact, Paul says several things here to Timothy, which Scripture is important and useful for. He says it can uh, rebuke, it can train you, it can teach you, it can build you up in righteousness. And he says that Scripture needs to be the foundation of that process, which all of us need to go through, and all of us can become encouraged in. When we think about the church's relation to Scripture, I actually particularly love how the Presbyterian Church describes uh, the place of Scripture in our life. What we say in our tradition is that Scripture is the unique and authoritative Word of God. That's how we describe it in our tradition. It's the unique and authoritative Word of God. It's unique. There's nothing else like it. Uh, and it is authoritative in our life. It is meant to build and shape and that we are to bend our lives towards the teaching of Scripture. And you see that in our life together all the time. For example, in worship services, in this service, and in every single service we do here at Covenant, the thing that is the foundation of everything we do is the Scripture passage for the day. 
We never start a service by what songs we want to sing. We never start a service by what does the preacher want to talk about. We never start a service by what liturgy we want to use. The authoritative, the, the, the foundational thing, every single time we gather, is what is the scripture passage for today? And you should be able to look back at how everything that we do in any service of worship is reteaching and pointing back to what the scriptures are about. That is the authority upon which we build our worship services together. It's why we also want you to be built up and encouraged and trained and taught about righteousness uh, on a daily basis. One of the things that we've developed here, uh, and by we, I mean the discipleship department. I don't want to gain credit for it, but it's an amazing thing, is our online devotional. Every day, hundreds and hundreds of you now receive uh, an online devotional that appears in your inbox. And it's a way to start your day or to, to invest as you go through. And it's not inspirational quotes. It's ways every day of, of being taught the scriptures, of sitting in the scriptures, of being built up and trained in righteousness. That's why we have so much of our time and energy that's devoted to gathering around God's Word. Whether it's in Lamplighters or Men in the Word or Presbyterian Women or the Kairos class or Downtown Men's Bible Studies or so many things we do, it is about standing on God's Word as the unique and authoritative voice in our lives. And what we believe in that is that we want to be people and we want to be a community who in essence doesn't bend Scripture to what we want it to say, to suit our desires, but we are to bend our lives to follow in the teachings of Scripture. That's what it means to be encouraged and, and, and taught and trained in righteousness. And today is actually a great example of that, of how we sit under the authority of Scripture. Pledge Sunday, where we're called to, to extravagant generosity. That we don't bend Scripture for what we want it to be, but we bend our lives to align with what Scripture calls us to. Because Pledge Sunday would be a totally different experience if, if it was just about bending Scripture to what we want. Now, I might be the only one here who's going to admit this. I might be the only one who feels this, but I feel it, and I'll admit it. And I'm going to be open and honest with you. I am a financially frugal individual. That if someone asked me, Thomas, what do you feel like giving away of your money? I would say, eh, not very much. <laughs> somewhere between like zero and 0.1%. Because I like to have what I have. I like to use what, how I want to use it. It's, it's, it's money that, 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 I, that that's what I would choose. But that's not what we're called to. We're called to be extravagantly generous. We see in the Old Testament and the New Testament over and over and over again that, that tithing 10% is like the minimum. That's as easy as it gets. It gets harder after that of how generous that we are supposed to be. And when we say, oh, okay, well, I, I might not feel like it. I might not choose it. I might not like it. But I am going to lean into what God's word has called me to live out this value that change and transformation happens. Starting in the world, that we see the building up of the kingdom of God for the flourishing of creation. But the other thing that we see is that it actually is liberating and transformative to the giver. That I need to be freed of my financial frugality. That I need to be freed from living life like this to saying God's going, no, I want you to live life like this. I want you to believe in a God who provides. I want you to believe in a God where generosity, I want you to follow in the footsteps and emulate the values of a God who gave everything to you. 
That that's what life's supposed to look like. And so because of our understanding of Scripture, today is a day where we put into practice how Scripture can build us up. How we don't build, uh, transform and bend Scripture to fit our desires, but we change the patterns of our life to follow what Scripture calls us to. It's the unique and authoritative word in our life. And that applies to all of us. But when we think about Scripture as the unique and authoritative word, when we think about how it's to uh, encourage us for building up in righteousness and teaching us and training us and encouraging us and rebuking us, as Paul writes here, what I also want to suggest is that, is that if we just see it as like rules that we're supposed to do, we miss so much of what God wants us to see. Because there's another way that Scripture can be the unique and authoritative word in us. And that Scripture can be a way that God openly and actively communicates with you and me today. That when we are facing difficulty, God's word can minister to us. When we are facing decisions and uncertainty, God's word can be how God speaks to us to guide our steps. That scripture is not a manual that we just memorize, but it is a living word in which we can go back and forth and that the Lord can communicate with us in the most unique way possible. I'm sure that there have been moments in your life when Scripture has encouraged you and trained you and, and led decisions that you've made. I know it has for me. And the second half of what we're going to be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, the second part of our lectionary text for today, has done that for me and my family unlike any five verses of the Bible have. And I have never taught on this before. I have never preached on this before on purpose because I worried that if I tried to put what I'm about to try to put into words, it would just cheapen it. You're not going to really get it of how important and central these five verses are. But what I can tell you confidently is without these five verses that came to us where God spoke and trained us and led us forward, I would not know any of you. Some of you might think that could be a good thing, but I wouldn't be here. These five verses have shaped and formed me and my family more than any other five verses in the entire Bible, and I find it fascinating that the lectionary text assigns it today. The reason these five verses have been so critically important in our journey is that, uh, as you know, as many of you know, but in case you didn't, my wife is from Wales and Great Britain. We met while teaching English in Japan, where we lived for two years in rural Japan. Uh, we were both teachers on a program over there. And after two years, we came back to America, married, and uh, I was a Christian. And Beth was sort of reignited in her faith uh, after years. Uh, neither of us had been in church in a really long time, but through a series of events that I'm not going to get into now, uh, she and I were invited and went to a tiny little house church in rural Japan called the Bunkyo Gospel Center that was run by two Norwegian missionary women. And in the space of that little New Testament-style house church, uh, I realized that there was something spiritual to Christianity, which I had not been in a church in a long time, but it had not occurred to me that there was anything spiritual about Christianity before. And faith in Jesus became this whole thing for me. That when we were talking about what to do in our lives after uh, our time in Japan, we decided to go and study this faith more. There was no plan to be a pastor. There was no plan to be a minister. But we were just going to go study academically this faith that had become real to us. So we applied to the one school in the world that I knew taught about uh, this kind of stuff. Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta. And the reason that we applied there is because I had grown up a couple of miles away. Uh, and I was like, oh, I think these flights teach us something about it. And it's supposed to be good. And so, you know, we applied there and we went. 
It was, a, it, was a, it was an intense discernment process, I can tell you. Um, but, we, but what was more important for us was praying about what country to live in, what continent to live on, who was going to be leaving their home behind. And we, but we really felt like this was the right step to study academically this faith. And Columbia is an amazing school, but one of the things that was really hard for me uh, and really hard for Beth is that we showed up there and did not fit in at all. And it wasn't about Columbia is that what I learned is that the subculture of the church is this like bubble and orbit that just exists in its own way, like all subcultures do. And when we showed up there, neither of us understood the culture. Neither of us spoke the language. Neither of us understood the playbook that it felt like everybody else was operating from. And we were lost. I can tell you that it was more of a cross-cultural experience going to seminary than it was to go live in rural Japan for me. It really was. And we both felt completely out of place. It was like everybody there felt like had known from in utero that they were going to be Presbyterian pastors. And they came out and they had this journey of like, you know, they had gone to church all their life and church was really important and they'd gone to youth group and they were leaders in their youth group and they attended Bond Treat or they attended Mo Ranch and they had had these experiences there. They went to their college and they were part of a college ministry, probably a Presbyterian college ministry. After that, they had graduated and gone to a young adult volunteer program through the Presbyterian church and they kind of had always been focused and formed and they came together and they're like, hey, did you apply to like Austin Seminary? Did you get that scholarship at Princeton or how did this work? And I'm sitting there and Beth and I are sitting there going, are there other schools like this in the world? <laughs> like are genuinely, like, I don't, do, do these places exist? In a, like, I had no idea what was happening. And, 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 and there was like this, like I said, language and playbook that like everyone had the playbook and we were just didn't understand. They were very nice. But I would say things like, yeah, 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 I haven't been to church in years and years and years. And I came to faith in this rural Japanese house church run by Norwegian missionaries. And they were going, okay. <laughs> and just sort of walk, and you're like, I don't know. They couldn't relate to me and I couldn't relate. It was this whole thing. And so after a while, Beth and I were like, we should leave. We don't belong here. These are very nice people. They really are very friendly. But this is an entire culture that we do not understand. We obviously misunderstood where we were supposed to be. So when you're in times like this, we were definitely dropping out of school. The question is, were we going to go to the UK or we're going to stay in America? And, you know, we're thinking and praying about all this. One night, uh, Beth said, I feel like we should pray about this. And I said, so do I, but I'm tired. So I'm going to go to bed. And she was praying uh, because that's how a healthy marriage really works, uh, <laughs> is that takes place. And so I woke up the next morning and Beth was already up again. She had slept for a few hours, but she woke up and she goes, oh, Thomas, you know, I've been praying. Have we talked about the book Second Timothy? Recently, have you studied that in class? Or, and I was like, no, I don't, I don't, I've been a Christian for like eight months. I don't even know if that, is that in the Bible? Is it, have we read it before? I don't know what that means. She goes, I keep right as I'm praying over and over and over again. This passage keeps coming to my Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through five. But she said, I've never read it. I don't know. I think we're supposed to read it together. And I said, okay. Yo, know, it's like, no, this is weird. I feel, I don't know what this is. I don't like this. Uh, I, you know, it's like, I'm going to class. Again, a healthy way to engage with your spouse in that. And so I left and I went to class and she went to class and we came back at the end of the day and I walked into our apartment and uh, I, there was a voicemail there and it was from her aunt. 
Sheila Colcomb, who lived in Wales. And it was the only time Sheila ever called us in America in our lives. And there's this voicemail, and Sheila, and she goes, guys, I've been praying for you today. And this scripture passage keeps coming to mind. And I think God wants you all to read it. I think God's really put it on my heart. This is for you all. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And so like a very mature husband, I got frustrated with Beth about it. I was like, why are you bringing your wife, my, your, your, your aunt into this? Why are you contacting her? You and I sort this out. I definitely don't want to read this now. I don't like it that your aunt's being brought into our conversations and I didn't know about it. And there's a voicemail and it feels kind of passive aggressive and everything else. And she goes, have you considered, I haven't called my aunt about this. And I was like, what? And she goes, I haven't called my, maybe God's trying to tell us something. And I said, I don't know what this Welsh voodoo stuff is that you guys are doing, but honestly, I'm not comfortable with it. It feels manipulative. I want you to stop and I'm going to bed. Again, there's a reason we don't teach marriage seminars uh, about our first year of marriage. Go to bed that night, wake up, still as disoriented as ever, and we were going to a meeting, the two of us, a breakfast meeting at a professor's house. Daryl Guter, who's taught here before, has preached here before, some of you might remember. We go to his house. We're in a really good place, the two of us, uh, as we go to his house. We sit down with about 10 or 12 students that are there, and Dr. Guter starts reading. He says, before we get into the agenda for the day, I'm going to read to us a scripture passage from our daily devotional for today. It's 2 Timothy. <laughs> Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And this passage changed the trajectory of my entire life. And this is what Dr. Guter read. And this is what I invite you to hear now is the second part of what God has for this, this day. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Carry out your ministry fully. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The reason I've never taught on this is I can't describe to you what happened when those words were read. But it was like God looking at me, a distracted child, and taking my face in his hands and going, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying to you right now. You didn't miss it when you came here to be called. It's okay that you don't fit in. It's okay that you weren't raised in the same way. It's okay that your calling doesn't look like everybody else. It's okay that the world outside of the church walls makes far more sense to you than the world inside of the church culture. It's okay. Your calling is different. It might be to be to do the work of an evangelist. It might be to understand that your calling is not better, but it's not worse. I've called you from a place that is different. And your ministry may look different. 
And it's not about if it's favorable or convenient or easy or fun. And that moment kept us where we were, and it has given language to so much of what you have heard me say through the years. That as our church has been growing through the years, that God is not applauding us saying, good job, you're a healthy institution, but that we exist to be a love letter from God to those outside of our walls. That we exist to proclaim the message in Austin, Texas. That we exist to think about the poor and the lost and the beaten down and the forgotten. That we have been called and that the only value we have is how it is that we impact where we live, work, and play. We're a missional church. And all of that I didn't have language for, but all of it in that moment was God going, it's okay that your walk is completely different from anybody else's here. Not better, not worse, but it's your call. And I wonder this day, as this text, as I couldn't avoid it, as it's been given to us by the church for this day, after 20 years of refusing to teach on it, if maybe it can offer a rubric for Pledge Sunday about what God's been doing in our life and about the kind of church we're called to be going forward. Because I've struggled to explain to people why the things that have happened in recent years at Covenant have happened. When, when people, when, when church attendance is just in steady decline, uh, liberal churches, conservative churches, just in steady decline, especially in a place like Austin, Texas, that we see our church moving in a completely different direction. And not only do we see our church moving in a completely different direction, but we see that in recent years, the vast majority of the growth of our church, about 70% of our new members have come and were not members of another church before coming here, which I would stack up against any seeker church that exists out there. And so people have noticed this. It's like, why is this happening? And I have been able to give for years the most articulate explanation for why this is happening, which is, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's more complicated than one thing. I think there's a lot of things going on, and I think it is. But maybe, just maybe, Paul's giving us a rubric here to help us explain who we are, why this is happening, and what the future can look like as a missional church. Because he has this way of talking about it where he says that people are going to wander away from the gospel and wander away to what he calls myths. I know these aren't words we would use, but it's the words he uses and find for themselves teachers who will talk about what their itching ears want to hear. But that what we are called to do is to, in the face of those myths, proclaim what the gospel is, to proclaim the message. What if that's what's been going on this whole time? What if that's what the future continues to look like for us? What if that is the answer to the question that for years I haven't been able to answer? Let me give you an example. Sociologists tell us over and over again, if you want to understand the culture of a place like Austin, Texas, you have to understand that the defining element of our culture is a, an extreme individualism. We see it in all the time where people are like, well, this is your truth and this is my truth. And you're going, how is that possible? Like, it's true or it's not true. But we live in a world where it's like, well, that's my truth. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, it's your truth. And so, like, whether it's true or not, it's not even part of the discussion anymore. That as soon as I say it's my truth, then that becomes uh, the, the, the sort of winning argument. Or you see it in people who, when experts talk about something on TV, and they're like, here's what the evidence says, and here's what it's like, and, and, and here are the results of it. Folks are like, yeah, I don't believe that. Why? Do you have other evidence? Nope. Just don't believe it, and nobody can tell me what I'm supposed to think. 
That is a culture of extreme individualism. And that's part of something that all of us are a part of. I think one of the things that's happened here at Covenant through the years is that not using this language, but what we've said is that's a myth. We celebrate that in our culture all the time, that extreme individualism. But what we see is a gospel that calls us to something far different. What we see is a gospel that is completely countercultural in that because we think meaning is found in relationship. We think meaning is found in connection. We think meaning is found in being a part of something bigger than yourself. And that when you're only a part of a self-sufficient, isolated little island that is autonomous above and beyond anything else, it leads to the things we are seeing running rampant and ripping our culture apart. Of individualism that leads to loneliness. Of individualism that leads to isolation. Of individualism that leads to fear and suspicion of anything that's different. Of individualism that allows me to always say, nobody's going to tell me what I'm going to think or do. And it is tearing us in two. And what we have done is to set into this world that God loves. No, no. What does Jesus say about that? Jesus says, if you want to know what life's about, the most important commandment is to be connected to God, first off. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Because Jesus says, if you're not doing that, you're missing the entire point of why you're here. What does the gospel have to say? That we are a community of connection with God and one another. If you want to be a part of what we're doing, come be a part, not of a crowd but of a community where people will hear you, know you, listen to you, pray for you. You can pray for them where you can be known and connected in this place at a deep and intimate level and you will find something greater in life. We've never thought of it in terms of evangelism, but maybe that thing in a world of self-smug isolation and loneliness that people are looking going, oh, I'd like to be a part of that. We claim the message. In the face of that myth. Or what about, for instance, the myth that if we talk about our political differences, it's going to rip us apart. And so we should just stay away from them. And that what we've been doing in these courageous conversations is going, no, we think that's a myth. We think that in Jesus Christ, we can love each other even when we disagree. That people can be more important than the position that they have. And not only that, but as we sit in that place, we can actually learn from each other. If we can speak and hear the truth in love as what the gospel calls us to. And it can make us something greater than what we are on our own. We refuse to believe that our politics is just the thing that tears us apart. We think proclaiming the message brings us into a countercultural place that the world will look at and marvel at. We're not doing it to be evangelistic, but it might just be the most evangelistic thing we could do right now. Or lastly, what about the video we just saw at the beginning of this service? Leslie Newbegin is a missiologist. He talks about one of the defining acts, what I think Paul would say here is another myth of our culture, is that we have all come to accept this bifurcated life, this separated life between what Newbegin says, I can have my private faith, but in the public arena, we use kind of neutral public values. So like, you know, you can believe what you believe at home and I'll believe what I believe at home. But when we come together, we just know not to talk about that. We just know that to do that. So kind of, I wear sort of one personality at work 
and I wear one personality at church, and I wear one personality when I'm with my small group, and I wear one personality when I'm with my friends from college, and I wear one personality when I'm calling for UT at a football game, and that those things may not meet. The UT football fan, rabid fan, and the small group fan might be totally different masks that I'm wearing in those moments. And the gospel says no. You're not meant to live a separated, bifurcated life. You are meant to live as a whole person. We encourage one another to follow Jesus where we live, work, and play. And that that holistic existence as a follower of Jesus will shine like stars. And that happened in this video that we showed today. Yeah, it's a video about pledging, and it's a video about a mission partner that's amazing, and the work's amazing. But one of the things as I watched it that occurred to me is that Michael invited us. Think about this for a second. In Austin, Texas, prestigious downtown law firm, Michael invited us to film it in his office. He didn't come to church to talk about church things. And so his partners, who wound up in the video somehow, his partners were part of it. The paralegals knew. The receptionists knew. The security guard who let him in all knew what this was about, not because someone was being evangelistic, but they were just saying, this is where this work happens, and so come and be a part of him. What would it mean? Imagine the conversations that sprang from that choice in his office. Imagine the stereotypes about a Christian that were overturned in that moment. Imagine the ripple effects that went out into that law firm by that simple decision. Many of those things we may never learn here at Covenant, but imagine what was different by that choice of saying, I don't talk about church things only when I'm here, but I'm going to be a part of a community that's following Jesus where I live, work, and play. That's the kind of church we are. That's what it means to proclaim the message right now. That's the kind of church we're building for in the days and weeks and months and years to come. And that holy work is what we get to participate in this morning as we continue to encourage one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, do pray that you would lead us and guide us in this journey. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.